I need to shield my eyes from the sins of the world. She's too hot for me to perceive. This can't be allowed. So when I say, what is your favorite part of this movie? Your answer is Carrie and fucking boss. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Can't Let It Go, the show about the things stuck in our heads. My name is Matt, and I use he, him pronouns. I'm AC. I use they, them pronouns. And today, we're going to talk about The Matrix Resurrections, the fourth one. Oh my god. The best one? Yeah, potentially (laughs) the best one. And also, a show that I think is intrinsically linked to that movie in a bunch of ways, Sense8. Yeah, that the, that's like a funny little joke to say that like Sense8 is like intrinsically mm-hmm. linked to another piece Maybe of work. Maybe psychically like, linked or something. Yeah, I like, I like what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sci- the, the Sicilium, right? Sci- Sicilium? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have enough time to pay attention to the like lore yeah, okay, of Sense8 okay, okay, this okay, round. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, anyway, you shared with me just now that you have a tiny little nugget for me. Um, yes, I'm going to text you this link quickly to share this with you. Now, most of these kinds of things that I've seen over the last few weeks, I have not shared with you because a lot of the things that would come up for me as nuggets are just um, memes from The Traders season mm. two, um, which I don't want to spoil for you. Um, but I don't think that this incredible supercut of poverty uh, does that. Um, other, you know she's on the show. Um, but it's this hilarious supercut of poverty doing her just very signature face that if you've Mm -hmm. watched Survivor you've seen her make a million times where she just kind of like squints her eyes and sticks her lips out (laughs) and like looks angry (laughs) I don't know Um, but the caption on it says uh, stop being paranoid nobody can tell you're high Mm -hmm. and then it's just me (laughs) 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 and um, that's how I feel all the time (laughs) that look is uh, a little bit iconic uh, Parvati specifically. <laughs> I like almost, I keep asking myself, like, did she get lip filler so that her lips stick out like that more because mm-hmm. like it's her thing or is that just what, what her face is like? Either way, I love it. It's iconic. It's incredible. That's my nugget for the day. Yeah. I'm, I'm eager to watch that. I think they're up to what, episode seven. Yeah. I think I'm going to start watching it after that. Cause I'm not going to like, inhaled the whole show in two days yeah. like I did last time. <laughs> it would be very easy to do that again. I mean, I recommend savoring it because it's delightful, but mm-hmm. it would be very easy to do that again. <laughs> yeah. With that, let's get into The Matrix. Oh, boy. AC, did you watch The Matrix Resurrections when it came out, like, on Max? Oh, yeah, so we, I went to see it in theaters. Um, oh. And, um, yeah, so um, I went to see Matrix in Ma- Matrix Resurrections in theaters in the small, like, theater down the street from my house, um, which is called Landmark Atlantic Plumbing. Great theater if you're ever in Washington, D.C. Highly recommend. It is a really great theater. So I went with Elizabeth, friend of the show, um, to see the movie. Um, at, it absolutely blew my socks off. It was one of the best movies I had ever seen in a theater. It was delightful in every way possible. And then I came home and immediately watched on Max again. So, yes, I did see it in the theater and also on Max. (laughs) Yeah, we watched it. um, We watched it at home. I think like the Spider-Man No Way Home had 
come out right around mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And we had not, so we didn't see like a movie in the theaters after COVID until the Eternals, like a couple months after it came out. Um, <laughs> and like two days later, we saw Spider-Man No Way Home. And I was like, okay, that's enough time in public with other people Very for me. Very fair. Yeah. Right? Um, and so we didn't do the Matrix Resurrections, but we watched it at home. And I think I watched it maybe four times that week. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I looked at I just like searched in our iMessage to see if yeah. I had said anything. <laughs> Did to we you. text about it at all? We, we've texted about it a bunch, but the <laughs> first text was between me, you, and Mitch, and I said something oh. to the effect of like, "I'm afraid it's going to be Lana yelling at the camera a bunch," which. <laughs> It is. It kind of was, but yeah. Not in the not in the way that I thought it was going to be. The thing yeah. I was afraid of was that after twenty something years, that the movie that would get made is Lana being pissed at like red pill assholes. Like, sure, yeah. Uh, misunderstanding the metaphor, right? Yeah. And instead, uh, she chose that movie to be like. I'm going to make a movie that doesn't meet your expectations because I don't want your expectations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in some ways says like you did get the metaphor wrong. The meta, the point of the metaphor was that it's a false choice, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the incredible line from Orpheus, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not a choice. You already know what you need to do is Mm -hmm. perfect. Right. Like in this and recontextualized. Yeah. 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 Over and over in the movie. And it all becomes, you know, centered around that specific theme rather than, some of the other themes that are more present in the first three movies. And I find that to be delightful. Yeah. So what I will say up front is, uh, I don't think we can get through this without immediately spoiling most of the movie or like large parts of sense eight. So if that's something you want to like see yourself for the first time and not listen, that's chill with me. So listener, go do that and come back and listen to <laughs> us rant about it. And hopefully you will, uh, imagine that you're a part of that conversation because you are just as excited as we are. Yeah, yeah. Wow, welcome back. It's so good. <laughs> I'm so sorry you've just had your heart broken by some of the most meaningful pieces of sci-fi uh, and transformative television and film. Um, but welcome, and I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're talking a second ago about like the false choice. My favorite, like my favorite moment. It's so early in the movie is when Bugs uh, is trying to explain the choice to this new sort of like program. Morpheus, right? And she she says something to the fact of like the person that gave me this choice was uh, mostly annoyed because I uh, tried to tried to explain to her that I wasn't going to reduce um, you know my experience by swallowing what amounted to a, like a binary choice when that's not really yeah. how reality is or something to that effect, right? Yeah. Uh, and I just I it's hysterical. I, I noticed like the game that Thomas Anderson is is making is also called binary. Like there there's a lot of stuff that's like little pieces in there. My thesis about this movie is that Lana just wanted to make the most Neo Trinity shipping <laughs> fanfic <laughs> that had ever yeah. been made. And she said, you know what? I've got a blank check to do that. <laughs> and I'm going to make it canon. I mean, and and boy, did she. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Matrix is actually, it's a love story. Like, mm-hmm. that's all that it is, actually. Um, it's a rom-com. Um, you've all been <laughs> tricked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, so I may even just read some of the stuff word for word that I wrote today, but like, please. among all of the meaning and analysis that like is done around the Matrix and should be done around the Matrix and I think is valid about the Matrix, my take is that Lana just wants to make movies that she thinks are cool. Yeah. Like, at the 100%. end of the day, she, she really just is like, 
like I I think these wolf people in Jupiter Ascending seem really neat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. That movie's terrible. It's so true. Wow, that movie was so bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I like my life flashed through my eyes as I remembered watching the movie Jupiter Ascending <laughs> and like how excited I was for it because it's so my aesthetic and so my kind of story. And wow, mm. what it what it actually was. Yeah. I just, I just think like her main purpose for being a filmmaker is like, this seems rad and I'm yeah. going to make it. And like the rest of it falls out. Like I think she's intentionally thinking about some of the things, right? People have talked about, the matrix one through three is trans metaphor for, you know, a number of years. And like, I think that deeper meaning there, I think a lot of it's intentional, but I also think a lot of it is subconscious just because those movies are made by two trans women. Right. Yeah. And those people are naturally going to be attracted to ideas of identity, being someone else in different spaces. Like those are things that naturally fall out of just being that person. Yeah. But like the reason that those two want to make a movie about like the implications of the internet in 1999 Uh it's because it sounds fucking neat yeah yeah and i think that like it's also the same like you could say that is true of just so many directors right like why does um sam rockwell make any movie that sam rockwell makes right like just for fun just to see stuff blow up right and so like i i think that you are your analysis here that like that this is the the chance that she takes with the opera like with the money that they were going to give her no matter what to get the story that like she wanted to tell today you know or when she was Mm -hmm. writing it out right not whatever she thought the story that everybody wanted to hear was i think is like spot on and it's fun it's delightful i think it's also like for me in many ways the the if a movie is going to be that meta Mm -hmm. it does have to be meta on even another level which is that it has to be meta in a self-aware way Mm -hmm. which feels like it needs to be meta in a meta way right (laughs) it's such a stupid thing to say but like 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 deadpool is a thing that works and like i get i i enjoy it i'm not even trying to say i get why people like it like i enjoy deadpool but what deadpool is often or what deadpool rarely does is be like also, I know I'm talking to the camera, right? Like, yeah. it's like, I'm talking to the camera. I know the camera's there. I'm talking to you, the viewer. But it's also, it's not saying like, and this is why this movie's made this way, right? Yeah. The one time I think it the movie does that is when, um, it's I can't remember the first or second one. It's, it has to be the second one because that one's cable shows up. But he he calls him Thanos, right? Oh, yeah. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the same actor. Um, but like, you can do that. But if you're gonna do it with the Matrix, it has to be aware of the discourse around the matrix, right? And it has to be aware that you are bringing those expectations, which is why I don't know if it's the best scene in the movie, but the one that makes me laugh the most is the one where they're sitting at the round table for making the quote fourth matrix game. Christina Ricci is there out of nowhere. Where has she been in this movie? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, some of our and, other favorite Wachowski family irregulars are there. Oh, yeah. We've got, uh, I, who we have Freema Agumon is in that scene. Yep. Who's yep. the guy that played Rajan in Sensei? I He's also there. Yeah. We've just got all these people sitting around and they all represent different aspects of 
what people got out of the first three Matrix films. There's a guy talking about <laughs> bullet time, which is the one that gets stuck in my head because he says like, bullet time. <laughs> bullet time. <laughs> There's a guy that says, I like my my uh, Matrix games because it's a game in the fiction of the movie. Dumb, loud, and... Um, he doesn't say explosive. I can't remember, but it's like uh, dumb, loud, and big, I think is what he says. Um, but then there's people that are like, it's a trans metaphor or it's about crypto fascism yeah. or it's about, yeah. uh, it's a, you know, an uh, allegory about like capitalism or something. And like, sure. All of those things yeah. are, are true. There's a, there's, I have watched <laughs> the extras, like the equivalent mm. of the DVD extras, but like mm-hmm. I, I bought the movie on uh, iTunes a while back, um, and I've yeah. watched them like four times now because I just think wow. they're like, really cool to watch as like a person who enjoys seeing how films are made. And Lana says, she says it's that's the magic of art; it has all these meanings. And then she says, all those meanings are true, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Matrix is about guns and blowing stuff up, and the Matrix is about bullet time, and it's also a trans metaphor and it's also yeah. you know a look at capitalism it, it is all those things at the same time she said i got sick of people telling me what the matrix means and i wanted to mock them like <laughs> she straight yes. up says like this scene is meant to mock all the people that tell me what the matrix means yeah yeah i mean i think that's all right it makes me think of of course the john green the often john green quoted mm-hmm. you know that that the the art the thing belongs to the people who consume it right the mm-hmm. stories belong to us mm-hmm. and i think that like that is that's the thing that she is also like really trying to say there right is like mm-hmm. this story belongs to me and here's mm-hmm. my version of it and the thing about art is you interpret it and that meaning is true for you. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, that's true of all forms of art, right? We don't all. And I mean, I think sense eight is a great Testament to mm-hmm. like this perspective of the world, which is we can all see hear, experience, feel the same thing. And it is fundamentally slightly different for each of us. And like the ways that we experience that sameness is informed by like, context experience in like all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I rewatched the first three matrix movies and I was like, I don't really want to talk too much about the first three matrix movies. Cause yeah. I think they are their own thing that is like separate from this movie, but I rewatched them um, like right before this movie came out. And what I took from them is the first one is an exploration of what the internet can be. Right. Yeah. And what that means for identity and, um, you know, all the things that we just said that, you know, happened in that boardroom and then two and three are really wrestling with the implications of the original movie, right? Mm-hmm. The Matrix Reloaded, I think is written, it's written a couple years after the first one, right? And it's my experience watching it in 2021 was, oh, this is from a person who started to see the way that the internet actually like mm. kind of started to take a place in our lives. Yeah. Like this is still pre-social media, but like we're starting to understand the ways in like uh of how people act and how people live online and uh they it was shot and filmed and written all at the same time as the as the third one so that's really just like a follow-up on on the same ideas and taking them even further and of course like extending this like lore and plot that um supports all of these ideas i love those movies i saw you know saw them in theaters like they're really great 
the way that Lana describes this one is it's not another rectangle in a series of other rectangles. Mm -hmm. It's one, Mm -hmm. it's like a rectangle that encompasses all previous rectangles. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's because it's in conversation with every part of that original trilogy and is not a part of it or an extension of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I I love this kind of storytelling. I love any sort of meta narrative, but I love this kind of storytelling that is both about reclamation and about like expansion and then like ultimately about hope and survival, right? Like mm-hmm. those are those are the kinds of stories that I love and this movie has so many of the types of characters that I love that each get their own like moment in the scene and that's not just about these characters like specifically being referential in this story to Mm -hmm. people we've seen before actors we've seen before you know growing up or people explaining i'm so-and-so's grandchild all of those things happen right Mm -hmm. and it's not about any of those references it's about like those types of characters in this type of story and the roles that they fulfill of like demonstrating the values that the story holds at its core, loyalty, friendship, love, care, found family, chosen family, right? Like, and truth, right, is is the ultimate thing, right? Mm-hmm. Choosing the truth, even when it's hard, bad, real, you know, going to damage and destroy you, all of those kinds of things. And when there's risk involved. So I don't know, I just like, I think that there is something so special about the way that this movie is informed by the previous movies that feels both silly and very meaningful because Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that in some moments it's entirely silly when they are having the Morpheus reveal Mm -hmm. and he makes the joke about how he's like, Oh yeah, he got to do like all this cool, you know, flashing Mm -hmm. lights behind him, rain Mm -hmm. coming down. And here I am walking out of a bathroom stall, right? Like, (laughs) like that's objectively funny. Right. But it's also a very good like version of the, of even like, the actual narrative of the matrix itself, right? Implies that someone like Morpheus, who is both of the matrix and not of the matrix, right? Like gets that kind of perspective on the world and gets to act in that way because it, it's still logical within like the confines of the story. Right. Yeah. I guess I'll just ask you, what are some of your, high moments in in this particular version of the matrix okay so (laughs) there are some specific moments that are like my top moments not because of anything about the story but just because there are some very specific parts of this movie where every everything that's happening is so hot that i (laughs) my brain just like okay when i went to see this movie in the theaters and they go it's like Two thirds of the way through the movie, when mm-hmm. they go to the I motorcycle shop, you know. Okay, so here's here's what happened. We're in the theater. I have been being so good for most of the movie. If you if you have never gone to see a movie with me, you know that it, I am constantly struggling to like not react loudly and have an emotional experience while watching the way something. That you will occasionally <laughs> when we see a movie together, just like put your hand on my lap and be like. To, like, stop from saying, Matt, oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, I'm constantly trying to not talk, not laugh, not, like, cry so loud. I'm just a loud person, okay? So, 
It's like the scene cuts in and the camera pans down and it's like sparks are flying and she is like just muscle bound in her little tank top. I said out loud, inappropriate. (laughs) I like could not hold it. I was like, it's it's inappropriate. That cannot be in front of me in this movie theater. I need to shield my eyes from the sins of the world. She's too hot for me to perceive. This can't be allowed. So when I say, what is your favorite part of this movie? Your answer is Carrie and fucking boss. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Specifically her arms, but also, you know, all everything about her. Um, that that moment is maybe like top for me, but I do also really love the um, like bigger ensemble moments in this movie. Mm-hmm. I be, I'm a fan of Sense Eight. I love an ensemble mm-hmm. show. I love an ensemble movie. And boy, do we get a lot of those Sense Eight in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so I I love actually those little ensemble moments because I like the implication of like the expansion and the growth of that resist very once very small resistance unit made up of such a small number of people and getting to see like the way that it illustrates the point that bug is bugs is trying to make about like, it is different. There has Mm -hmm. been peace. The world is, there is good. We have figured out how to be safe as as safe Mm -hmm. as we can. Right. And like, I think that those ensemble moments get you that. So I love when they're in the ship Mm -hmm. um, or I guess when they've gotten to IO and Mm -hmm. you're, you're like seeing, you know, the Morpheus nanobot, Mm-hmm. magnetized version um and you get get another sensate irregular in magnetized mm-hmm. version the guy who plays felix and mm-hmm. sensate um and you just kind of get to see that like glimpse behind the doors of what does a peaceful survivalist but a peaceful version mm-hmm. of this long-term future on this planet that we've been really familiar with like what does it look like yeah it's really so cool those are like niobe is is the general um in this new place and she is running I mean, she's running a city, right? But it yeah. has this very like, like neighborhood, like collectivist kind of feel, yeah. right? Yeah. That is, it's a very different vibe than Zion from the yeah. original trilogy. Something they directly bring up, right? Like maybe yeah. minutes after you're introduced to it, and it is really cool. Also, I immediately noticed uh, the guy who plays Felix as like the robot magnets. And I was like, I see you. (laughs) And then I like behind the scenes, I was like, see, that's the actor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I I think that like the other moments I I love, I love the way that this, this version of the movie chose for like what they chose for the updated version of like the styling in the matrix. Mm -hmm. And so any of those shots where they step from the real world into the matrix, whether Mm -hmm. it's Morpheus stepping into a suit or like when all of them go through the the door one by one and you see them all go from normal to hot. Um, That one where they're in Paris, right? They walk through the mirror in Paris and all of their clothes change to like extremely hot. And Brian J. Smith is in this jacket and it's, it's got like, it's it's a it's just like a black like denim jacket, but then it has these leather strips, and I'm like, 
what's the point of this? And it's it for no reason it's, fashion. It, just to make him look hot. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just And Ed and Dina Ibarra has those curls on the side yes. of her head. <laughs> yes. I think the thing that's so funny is right, like if the implication is that they get to choose what they look like in the matrix if they have the agency to enter the matrix, right? Mm-hmm. To choose when they enter, then then they just always choose like I just want to be hot. That's like, like they're always just like, okay. And, and now put in, plug me into the machine that makes me smoking hot (laughs) (laughs) myself, but the hot version. It's (laughs) so funny that mirror in Paris, like walking through the mirror in Paris, it's not even the scene. It's like a little pass through moment for the scene. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it is one of the parts of the movie that sticks in my brain for that exact reason. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I think there are also like things that I'm glad that weren't like belabored in the mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> things that I think of as like my least favorite moments. Um, like I, I have always been, a, a, as we talked about in the question episode, I, I struggle with a little bit of a claustrophobia. So like the whole like mouth stretching thing has mm-hmm. always been a hard no for me. I liked that it made the appearance, mm-hmm. right? As like a tell, but I liked that it wasn't like a longer thing like it was mm-hmm. initially because that was would have been very yeah. hard for me. I One of those things that I wish wasn't in this movie, it's a really tiny moment. It's when uh, Groff, mm-hmm. like Jonathan Groff, realizes that he is Agent Smith. Okay, first of all. <laughs> Jonathan Groff. Yeah. Um, he realizes he's Agent Smith. It's like right after Morpheus has shown up at like the office for Deus Machina. Neo is like running around trying to like not be Neo, but realizing he kind of has to be. And Groff screams, Mr. Anderson. And <laughs> uh, Neo goes, Smith? No, it can't be. And I would pay someone a million dollars to erase the line, no, it can't be, from every film on the planet. (laughs) I think that I... That's so funny because the thing for me is I think that that and any other scene where they give Keanu more than four words to say at a time, he really struggles to carry it. And I love that about him. The, the, he, he just really, he says, He's like the the cool version of Christopher Walken, mm. right? Like everybody's always like, "Oh, when you do your Christopher Walken impression, you must make sure that you pause every <laughs> few words, right?" And um, and now more cowbell, <laughs> whatever, you know, right? Like the he, Keanu is the cool mm. version of that. You know, John Wick, he says, like, I think 10 words, maybe the whole movie. Most of them are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which Keanu Reeves says in almost every movie he's in. Anyway, mm-hmm. so, yes, my point was, I agree with you. He's he's not, he's very good at brooding, mm-hmm. and he's not very good at using his words. Yeah. I think when he's, like, when he's on the ship in the real world, I think that's when you get, like, good Keanu performances. Um, yeah. When he's Neo struggling with, you know, the fact that this is the matrix and that he's been duped again and that, you know, he doesn't have all his powers. Like it's not exactly working totally well, but he's delivering the scene at least like yeah. with his face, you know? Yeah. Um, I do really like when he's like having his little menti bee and he's touching mm-hmm. the mirror to, to like try yeah. to see if his hand will go through the mirror and he's just poking it. He looks, <laughs> it's such a relatable look of like true desperation of like, is this real? I don't know. Oh man. 
I I love a lot about this movie, but the things that I often love about this movie are like they're either like ideas or like little tiny things, right? Um, yeah. So an example is early, early on in the movie, um, they're like uh, they're basically watching a recreation of that first scene with Trinity, um, and it's yeah. in this. If you've not seen it and you've decided to listen anyway, it's in this um, what they're calling a modal, a modal. which is a little program that. Neo as Thomas Anderson has written using some old quote matrix code, um, which would be for the in matrix video game, the matrix, which is itself actually the matrix. Cause he's the creator of the matrix. Did uh, well, I get that right? I don't know that they're saying he created no? the matrix that he's in. I just think mm, that, yeah, okay, that okay, that's okay. the story they've set up for him in this new version of the matrix. Okay. But okay. Um, there's this line that seek says seek is like, the new computers guy. Um, and also the second actor that played Caffius Sequoia. in uh, Sense8. Um, yeah. He says, why use old code to make something new? And Bugs says, I don't know. And then she says later on, maybe this isn't the story we think it is. It's the first time. It's like, I don't know. It's not very far into the movie, but I was like, oh, I'm going to like this movie. Because we're already touching on mm-hmm. what is a sequel? What is a reboot? Right? Like, why would we make another Matrix movie, right? And what does this yeah. all mean within the lore of the Matrix, right? Like, it's not abandoning yeah. the idea that, like, the story of the Matrix matters in this movie, right? It's not yeah. saying we're only telling a meta narrative. It's saying we are actually telling the narrative of Neo and Trinity and all of the people that you're used to seeing, and we're going to work with that. But also we're going to spend some yeah. time commenting on the fact that like, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Yeah. I mean, and as a storytelling device, it's, it's really effective because it also puts the viewer into a position again of like, uh, it helps the viewer who has seen the movies, has the context, knows the story, right? Reposition them as like calling you as a viewer to look mm-hmm. again, right? Like you think that you know what is happening, look again, which is also what Neo is being told to do, right? Like you can see the cracks, like look again, you just have to look right at it. And it's like an invitation for you as the viewer to reanalyze. What did you think about this the first time? Forget it or figure out how it makes sense the Mm -hmm. second time. Right. And like, I think it's a cool way to, to do that flipping of the script. Yeah. I mean, it's why I've seen the original series so many times. It's because I'm like, I learned something new about what I feel about it every time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I love that. Uh, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny little moment that I also love, which is um, the the premise of like setting up Neo and Trinity is that um, Neo is, of course, Thomas Anderson, and he's been um, convinced that his life is that he was like a famous video game designer of a game called The Matrix or the trilogy of games called The Matrix. And they're asking him to make a fourth one called Binary. Uh I was, you know, I thought that too. And then I was watching it today and I was like, I think binary is the game he's working on when they ask him to make the matrix four. Oh, I, I thought that until I saw it again today. Okay. I missed that. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's totally true. Yeah. I, I, it's a totally reasonable thing. No, I think you're right. When I watched it, I was like, Oh, um, cause he's working on the game binary and that's when Groff calls it. And I was like, we need to make matrix four. But anyway, it's like right after he's been asked to do that, they go down to this coffee shop that's like below their office. And that's when Trinity, now going as Tiffany, right, walks in <laughs> with her kids. Um, her husband, and like, Chad. You know, 
Well, so this is the thing. She's like ordering. She's ordering from uh, the guy at the counter who is the guy who played Bugs in Sense8, yeah. right? Different character named Bugs. And Neo's douchey uh, like coworker slash handler program introduces him to Tiffany. And they're like having this flirty moment. And then her husband walks in. He's like. And she goes, this is my husband, Chad. And every time she says, this is my husband, Chad, I just like, huh? because like, of course you would name the motherfucker Chad. <laughs> she also seems so annoyed that he's there, which is so funny. <laughs> yeah. the way yeah. she, this is my husband, Chad. I And I'm sorry if you're out there and you're listening and your name is Chad. I'm sorry that I'm about to do this, but. I've never met someone I liked named Chad. It's like such. Well, also like that name has been co-opted just to be like, yeah, kind of like douchey, like extremely male bro. Yeah. I'm like, yes, sorry to all Chads that may or may not be listening. Isn't what am I thinking of? Hang on. Something's happening in my brain. You thinking of Giga Chad? Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Thank you. <laughs> it was just like, I was just a few seconds behind. I was like, there's yeah. something. It's there. Thank you, Giga yeah. Chad. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, I love that scene and I love how they set up their relationship as like distant and the Matrix is keeping them apart, right? Like we learn in the future yeah. that Chad is a handler program, right? Meant to keep Trinity at a slight distance from Neo at all times. Close, yeah. but not super close. And that's the same with basically Neo's manager at the um, at the video game studio. Wanted to point out, the guy who yeah. plays Chad, do you know what his role in the first trilogy was? No. He was the stunt double for Keanu. Oh! <laughs> that's so funny. And if you so look at like, old footage of him, that's really he, perfect. he looks a lot like Keanu yeah. back in the day. He no longer is the yeah. case. But, that's funny. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that one of the other like little moments that I love, uh, it's it's not a like mm-hmm. funny or like a, a fun moment, but I do love like, okay, I think that, you know, as some of my friends have said, and, and I agree with them on uh, like, we're, it, we're due for a therapy backlash mm-hmm. cycle. And so like, I do like this version of a story where like you can see how clearly something like therapy can be weaponized against a person, which is like something, yeah, something that happens. Right. So I actually love these moments where like you're seeing him, Thomas, like try to determine what is real and what is fake. And especially in that moment where for the first time you can like see where his loop is. Right. Cause like, mm-hmm. I think that that was something that was happening for me when I was watching it was like, okay, what's his loop? How are they keeping him here? Mm -hmm. Right? Like what's the moment where when he talks to Trinity, when he does gets too close, how do they reset him? Right. And getting to see that as like, Oh, they just tell him he's having a mental breakdown again. And the like touching of his legs, Mm -hmm. right? Like these moments where you see him reach for those gestures, I think are really, really interesting to me because they are real techniques for like grounding Mm -hmm. yourself in reality. And like, they are like what I use a lot of times when I'm having an anxiety attack. Right. And so, but it's also like such a clear illustration of like, those things can be used to manipulate Mm -hmm. you and they are like done. So really effectively here, right. You hear them say like, Oh, they're all blue pill later. Right. Well, the, the bad guy in this movie is the analyst is 
He's yeah, therapist, it's the therapist. Right? It's Neil Patrick yeah. Harris, who I was really skeptical of being in this movie when I saw that. Him and Jonathan Groff, I was very skeptical of. I think he does okay. Like, I don't. I think for the character he's playing, which is kind of this, like, really bombastic, like, mustache-twirling villain kind of thing, like, it really works. I don't know about you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it works a little bit less for me. I I have seen him do this sort of bombastic villain character mm-hmm. sort of enough times that it doesn't, it just takes mm-hmm. me out of it a little bit, I think. Like, even Jonathan Groff takes me out of it a little bit, but mm-hmm. I'm laughing and having fun with him being there. Like, he is, I, I was going to say this earlier, but... <laughs> Just like, I don't understand why it is that a man that looks like Jonathan Groff has so much power over me, but my God, he is simultaneously so Mm -hmm. stupid and like impossible for me to take my (laughs) eyes off of. Okay. Um, And I just, I don't feel that way about Neil Patrick Harris. Although I do think that there's like something interesting there in that like both of the villains, like and I think that it's not Lana Wachowski trying mm-hmm. to say anything that's like what would usually mm-hmm. be being said by, okay, let me cut to the chase here. Sorry. Let me, let me get, let me get there. Like the two primary villains being played by mm-hmm. gay men, right. And ha- being very queer coded in the films in general, right. Like not shying away from that. And it makes it like a little, it feels like there's something, there's commentary there, but it's not the commentary that you right. might expect where it's like, the, the of course the villain is gay because right, right, villains right. are effeminate because being effeminate is evil right it's like i think it feels like something interesting and different more of a like the twinks yeah. can be evil too well i don't I, know i don't know that this is directly <laughs> something you were saying but i often think of like i think that there is either a coming narrative or a an existing narrative that's growing of gay men abusing power right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Of the queer community, we are the people who are most likely to be to, to, be, to be given that power, yeah. right? By those with more, yeah. I don't think Lana was trying to say that in here, but it may have just like kind of like fallen yeah. out out of you know casting or whatever. Speaking of casting, how how do you feel about the Jonathan Groff and Morpheus, uh, like Jonathan Groff, Agent Smith change and Morpheus change? I think the hard the hardest thing I love these mm-hmm. this casting. I love the way that they handled this change, right? Like actually one of the things that I don't like about Sense8 and that some other shows do is the like, oh, your face is looking a little <laughs> different to like tell you that a character mm-hmm. is being played by a new actor. I, I don't particularly like find that as mm-hmm. a good like storytelling device. I actually it's one of my least favorite plots that they do in Mm. New girl, uh, I don't know if you know about this, but like the Coach Wilson thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I like that there wasn't, there wasn't like a reason that couldn't be explained within Mm. the lore of the story for them to look different. And I liked that it wasn't, the, the approach wasn't exclusive. It wasn't either give us the old like the aged the aged actor character Mm -hmm. version right or the new and young version like we'll give Mm -hmm. you both we'll pick them and then we'll create a way where the story is saying we are living this over and over again with different faces and these are our true faces Mm -hmm. this time right and so i liked i liked it and there's like jonathan groff and there's morpheus who have different faces for lore reasons and for casting reasons Right. But then you get Niobe, who is Jada Pinkett aged up. Right. 
Um, and it works. Yep. But you also get the alternative yeah. faces, the faces that everyone else other than Neo and Trinity see for those two characters, right? Yeah. Um, we only see him a couple times. We see Trinity's, you know, sort of disguised face in a reflection on the table at one point. And we yeah. see um, Neo's you know, the face he presents um, to the matrix a few times um, in some flashback scenes and in a mirror a little bit. Um, yeah. So yeah, I agree. It's cool that they do it in different ways, depending on what's right for what character. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like, like, like I said, the thing about Jonathan Groff is, am I immediately laughing anytime I see him on screen? Yeah. A little bit. Is it a little bit out of fear? Yes. Is it a little bit out of adoration? Yes. Is it a little bit because he just has a goofy mm-hmm. face? Uh, yeah, yeah. Also that. Like, <laughs> I just like, I can't help but like him. I can't help but like him in this role. I can't help but like him in pretty much everything I've ever I seen mean, call him me in. crazy, but he's a good actor. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I, I love the first time we see him as he's standing in his office and he like says the Hugo weaving agent Smith line. Right. And he gives a killer Hugo weaving impression. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, really good. It's, it's really it's good. It's really good. I, he gives a very different energy to the character. Um, that I think really works. I love when he puts on his sunglasses and leaves oh, the yeah. room. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> And I, um, he reminds me so much of, um, oh my God, what's his name? Matt McGorry in this movie. Um, like the character that Matt McGorry is in, uh, how to get away Mm -hmm. with murder and, and this version of agent Smith feel very adjacent to me. The one thing that also like I did have a hard time with isn't about the recasting, but it was like about the, like the merging, the like part, He's part Morpheus, part Agent mm. Smith. Like, he's not all Agent Smith. Um, I, that, that part was, like, a little bit hard for me to follow and understand, like, what the purpose was in the story. I wish they had said that he was just, like, a recreation. I agree. So, the the what happened, to, to explain it to everyone, is uh, Jonathan Groff's Agent Smith is the original Agent Smith just after the events of one through three, he's been like demoted a little bit. That's a gross oversimplification, but that's Mm. what has happened. Okay. Morpheus in this movie is a creation of Neo as Thomas Anderson that he created for that like modal, that sub program, right? That has been extracted from the matrix, right? And he created that from code that he supposedly wrote for the original agent Smith and Morpheus of the video game, the matrix in the matrix, right? Uh Who knows Uh if those are actually connected to the real Morpheus and the real agent Smith of the actual matrix. Not sure, but it, the point is that they were created from the brain and the memory of Neo and they were put into a program and that program has been extracted from the matrix. Okay. Which is different from the actual agent. Yes, I see. It is lore heavy and messy as hell. Um, and if they had just said it was like Neo wrote a Morpheus program, that's all they needed to do. Yeah. 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 I, I think as you explained it, I was like, okay, I remember the snippets of dialogue where those things were happening. I know why I didn't yeah. catch on that that's what was going on. And okay. The only that reason I remember is because I've watched now. it twice in the last month. Yeah. I do also think that like, there's always some part in like these kinds of movies where, 
I get to a point where I'm like, is this tech speak that I don't understand? Or is this like the science fiction version? Right. Because like Mm -hmm. sometimes they're different or the same. One of the weirdest (laughs) things about this movie is that they chose to use the word modal to describe like subroutine or like, you know, offshoot program or something, you know, like it's just, it's a very. Okay. It's just a strange choice of word. Like it, it absolutely describes what they're doing, but it's also like, sure. I don't know. I feel like there's a more accessible word to describe what you're doing. Anyway, it, I just, I just think it could have like cleared a lot of that up. If change the name of a modal, just make it Morpheus. There you go. That's all you need. Yeah. It can just be, you know, Neo wrote Morpheus code and now it's Morpheus. But I also, sorry, I wonder if they, so the reason they don't have the original actors for both of those characters is because mm-hmm. both of them just weren't available, mm. right? It's not because either of them, them didn't want to be in the movie or anything like that, or they didn't want them there. Yeah. So I wonder if they would have done similar storytelling things if those actors had been available. Um, yeah. Because I don't know that this movie works if Morpheus is just Morpheus. That's right? true. If it's just the original yeah. Morpheus. I think that opening modal scene is really important and like um, losing it. I don't, know, I don't know how you do that without the version of Morpheus. Though. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think part of it is too, that like you don't get the opportunity for like, like, I, I don't know how you would build into the story. What's your entry point for Neo is trying to break out of the mm-hmm. matrix again without that. Right. Like the, <clears throat> there's something deep in his brain that is trying to escape, right. Like being hooked up as there always is. This is our new mm-hmm. way in. This is, he is, within the confines trying to break, figure out how to break his way out. And like, I think it's harder for me to see how that's true. If it's just like the original Morpheus is coming to get him. So I, I think that this is really a movie that takes place in kind of two parts. It's a movie that's in conversation with its predecessors and the discourse of its predecessors. Right. And then it's the half that's more of that, Lana Wachowski wants to see Neo and Trinity together forever. Half, right? And it, it is, kiss. Let it them is kiss. almost split right down the middle in terms of time, right? Like, yep. Neo does all of his escaping, and like all of his escape is surrounded by like, Lana has feelings about the discourse, and Lana has feelings about like the world, right? <laughs> um, and then once they get to IO, right? And Niobe has finished telling you what happened um, to. Zion and you know uh, to the original Morpheus they're like okay but Trinity's still there what are we going to do about that yeah. and then that becomes <laughs> the rest of the movie yeah. it's like Lana finally got to the part she was like cool I've done all the setup now I'm going to make him kiss <laughs> and she does so really effectively yeah. I love I love the like that scene in the cafe where they're like both being like pushed mm-hmm. back and like stretching to finally like touch hands is so good. And like the extremely effective use of like footage from the previous movies as well. Cause as they're reaching towards each other, yeah. they play that scene of Trinity running up to Neo in the train station yeah. and them embracing like right before their hands touch and like things blow up. Right. It's, uh, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, I really, one thing that I really like about the movie is in, in this sequence in particular is because it over, it, it overemphasizes it. No, it underlines the point that is stated rather simply and sort of in passing 
um, earlier, which is that it's never been about the one, right? He doesn't, he says, I don't believe about the one because it's not about the one. It's about Mm -hmm. the two. It's about the two of them together. It is about the cosmic power that the two of them have and the connection that he has to her and like how that is the thing that he fights for. And that like is perfect that's beautiful <laughs> people hate a retcon and i don't i think it's um i think I'd le- i hate a bad retcon in this case this is one that really worked um and it's delivered again by the villain the villain is telling you the premise of the story it's incredible um yeah he says like it was never just you right is the way that he says it um and the point is that like in every iteration where they created this new matrix, right. With uh, this rebuilt Trinity and rebuilt Neo failed (laughs) any time that they like got to interact with each other and fall in love. And so they stopped letting them do that. And when they tried to keep them apart, they didn't get the benefits they were looking for. So they keep them like just far enough apart. And he was like, I've been setting productivity records every year for whatever. (laughs) Um, uh, I think it's, a really cool recontextualization of the first three films that doesn't impact those films. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in any, in any way that means that you like watch them differently, right. You watch them differently. Sure. Maybe thinking like, okay, you know, where did Trinity and Neo meet? And at what point does he gain power? And like all that stuff. And you're Mm -hmm. maybe looking at like, where is she showing signs of power? But it's not diminishing those films in any way. And it's not overriding anything those films are trying to say. I am also a person who doesn't believe that like bad sequels overrate the, uh, you know, the, the meaningfulness of the, of the previous ones. But um, I like this specifically because it enhances those movies. Yeah. And also it's like, it's like a 20 year long twist to be like, Mm -hmm. Hey, remember when all the people in that movie said Neo was the one and he kept being like, no, I don't think I am. And there were other people that you trusted that also said, I don't believe in the one. Well, all those people were actually right. And it's because he was (laughs) only the one because Trinity was also. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know. I, I also think it's, they do this thing through the movie where um, he tries to fly like three or four times. When he he jumps this far (laughs) off the sidewalk and then says, don't think that's going to work. This is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan and I were watching today and he just like, he was like, I fucking love that. That's hilarious. (laughs) But he tries to fly three or four times and you never get to see him fly until literally the last shot of the movie. Yeah. The first person you see fly in this movie is Trinity. Trinity. That's my girl. He has like a bunch of all his other powers. He blocks a bunch of bullets and stuff. But the thing he does not do is fly until the last literal frame. Yeah. I will say, I think the, the blocking the bullets as they run away scene could have been shorter. They could have done less. I, I did get it. I did get that. That was, that was something that he could do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They do it like two or three times within like a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, when they're like trying to get up to the top of that building. Yeah. You know, when, when I decided I wanted to talk about this on the show was literally when, uh, right at that moment when they get to the top of the building and they're <laughs> yeah. deciding what they're going to do. And I was like, Oh my God, this movie is so inspired by sense like beyond yeah. casting. Right. Yeah. Like, so I, I have this link here credited. It's a, it's a link of people that were credited in both sense eight and the matrix resurrections. There are 238 people <laughs> movie and on the matrix or and uh on sensei and (laughs) 
Uh, that's incredible. They really said, we're going to hire all of our yeah. friends. Most of these people are actors, but you have uh, Tom Tickver, who is the composer for this movie. He composed, he was one of mm-hmm. the composers on the Sense8 uh opening title sequence and also directed a bunch of those episodes. You have a bunch of the cast. We've already talked about a bunch of them. You've got Freema Agumon. You've got uh, Brian J. Smith, Max Rimelt, Erendira Ibarra. You, you have a bunch of people. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce Toby's name. Toby Onwumere, I'm going to guess. But he played Caffius in, uh, in Sense8. Michael X. Summers was Bugs in Sense8. This is the barista in this movie. We already talked about the guy who played Rajan, who's named up Coley. Yeah, just all kinds of actors. And then you have a crap ton of the crew as well. Yeah. Stunts, production. Right. Now, it seems like Lana brought back a lot of the people from the original trilogy, um, sometimes in elevated roles. Like one of the guys who did like production design, he was like the production design lead. He yeah. was an important person on the on the original trilogy, but like not the main dude. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's a lot of that going on, but it really seems like this crew worked on the final season of Sensei, made that like movie finale, and then they were like, "What if we made another Matrix movie?" Yeah, Lana wrote this movie with Tom Tickver and what's his name? Boy, I don't remember his name. David Mitchell. Um, and David Mitchell is the guy who wrote the book Cloud Atlas and also contributed to the script for that film as well. And he was also a writer on Sensei. Yeah, he was also a writer in Sense8. There's yeah. just there's a lot of people in Sense8 in this movie, and it's it's because uh, Lana likes to work with her friends. Yeah. Um, but I one of the things she does in the um, in the extra features is she talks about how her process has changed. Mm. The original movies were all shot like in a warehouse, like on a set, the way that mm. like a lot of Marvel movies are made. Yeah. Right? She was like because I she said I was afraid of the sun. I, I liked artificial light because you can control them. Yeah. And she and Lily would like storyboard in entire films and um, like have everything down to the detail. Wow. Um, and now her process is really like, we're just going to get a camera on set. I'm going to be there literally like holding on to the cinematographer, <laughs> like, like the guy like with the camera and I'm going to be following him around. Right. Um and we're just going to shoot a bunch of stuff. Interesting. And and she knows how she's been doing this long enough, and she's got a process built up now, um, and some more trust, I think, with that process that she can just be like, okay, we're going to need these ten shots, and that's going to come into her head when they arrive. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, they were describing the way they did that like final um, chase scene. They didn't really know the choreography of like where they were going. Until, like, the dinner they had before they were going to shoot that first night. Wow. They brought it to the team on a napkin. Wow. That's crazy. That's so interesting. Did she say anything specifically about, like, that being informed by how Sense8 was filmed? Because when I was watching it this time, um, I I also rewatched the first season and about half of the second season of Sense8 before we recorded today. And, like, one of the things that struck me was, like, I want to see the storyboards for this. Like the story, mm-hmm. like like the the storyboarding process for this story with all of these different like overlapping panels where you're seeing characters from multiple perspectives, like that I that's a that's a storyboard I want to see, you know? The only stuff that I've really read about is that the the people who were on Sense8 describe a very similar process to what was being talked about in the special features, which mm-hmm. is that there's like no rehearsal not no rehearsal, but yeah. not a lot of rehearsal. Um, and that you show up ready 
and you film it and she might tweak it. Um, uh, Carrie Ann Moss describes it as like a, um, an acting professor, mm. right. Might, might tweak something in the moment when you're, you know, I don't know, running lines in class or something. Yeah. Um, that's the way Lana Wachowski will do filming. So you'll, you know, run a full 30 minute scene even sometimes. And then she'll be like, okay, there's like a five minutes in here. We're going to grab. And I want you to do it this way this time. And then she might grab half a line and like ask you to pause at the end. Yeah. And once she gets it on camera, she's like, cool, we got it. Right? Interesting. Um, and they might do it from another angle. Yeah. Right. Like, because that's, she decided she needed it right then. Yeah. You know? um, cool. I'm sure that there's more planning that goes into sure. it because those things happen. Like as you, become an expert at something. Yeah. But it sounds like a lot of that is more behind the scenes and more and less written down than it was in the earlier process. I'm, but, and just in terms of time, I'm sure that a lot of the process making sense, did inform the, the behind the scenes just cause it happened before. Yeah. But for me, the biggest progression from sense eight to the matrix is that they are fundamentally both stories about Loving people. Specifically, like, across distance and time yes. and reality, right? Like, about the the pole of, like, connection, right? Right. Whereas Sense8 is about eight people who are cosmically, psychically, physically connected to each other at all times. The Matrix Resurrections is about two people who are connected to each other for eternity because they love each other. Yeah. Right? And and they met each other at a critical moment of their lives. And it makes that scene where they jump off the building at the end, right? And when Neo like Neo knows he can't fly. Like he he knows he does, and he's giving yeah. over his life to her. One, because they have no choice, but two, because he trusts her. Yeah. With everything. Because yeah. she's just she's like literally 10 minutes before given up everything. She could have had everything. He would. He was willing to go back into the matrix to let her live her life, and when she said no, he said, "Cool, then I'm down. We're jumping off this fucking building together." Yeah, um, and she saves him. Yeah, and it makes me cry. Yeah, every time. Lana Wachowski did, in fact, look Nora Ephron right in the eyes and say, "Hold my beer." <laughs> if you met, if you said uh, you're a bird, I'm a bird. I, I mean, literally, literally, yeah. we're jumping off this fucking building. <laughs> and did you know that they actually did that stunt? Did they? They jumped off the building together. They jumped off that building. That's together. cool. I mean, of course, they're on wires. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah for they, sure. They those two people, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss like jumped off of that building in San Francisco. That's cool. Um, I actually find it really interesting. Obviously there's a lot of CG in this movie. It's a modern movie. It's a yeah. matrix movie, but a lot of this film is practically done. Yeah. Yeah. In that, ways that like Marvel movies aren't. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. That's actually something that like is pretty common. Like Keanu Reeves really likes to work on projects with more practical effects than CG. Obviously there's a lot of CG and like things like John Wick. Like, I don't know if you know about like all of the like, the like flashbangs for guns and stuff are edited in and John wick. And like, there's like a lot of, uh, con con controversy around it, I guess. Um, but the, yeah, he, he, Keanu Reeves is like pretty well known for often doing his own stunts. Right. And so like, he mm -hmm. likes those practical effect movies. Um, I cannot believe that I invoked Deadpool 
And while we were talking, the Deadpool and Wolverine trailer came out. (laughs) So we took a little little break that you will not have heard, but um, it's worth calling out because it's difficult to get back into recording. But the thing that I wanted to point out in the stuff we were talking about, connection, love, the ways that people are drawn to each other um, across distance and time and intentional separation, right, is that this is a theme that I really think that Lana Wachowski pulled directly from her previous project, right? I am not a person who has watched a lot of things between the Matrix uh, Revolutions and Sense8. I didn't watch... Cloud Atlas. Mm. I saw parts of Jupiter ascending mostly because I watched the beginning of it and was like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I've seen like scenes of Speed Racer. I'm people tell me Speed Racer is really good, and I'm sure that it is. It just is so not the thing I'm interested in. I wouldn't be so sure about that. <laughs> Maybe I should rewatch it, but my memory of it isn't. I don't know that I would recommend it. Okay. Uh. <laughs> And if anybody's upset about that, please uh, feel free to hit me up on the Discord and tell me why I'm wrong. (laughs) It's a good reason to join the Discord, if anything. Um, But being a huge fan of both seasons of Sense8, um, to the point that I was like very publicly online devastated when the show got canceled before it got uh, a finale, I can see the ties from the things she was doing there to the stories that she wants to tell with The Matrix. In fact, as complicated as The Matrix is, The Matrix... Resurrections is a much simpler story yeah. than is being told in Sense8. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so much simpler than the story that's being told in Sense8. Sense8, it, when when you start to think about Sense8 at any level deeper than the initial level of the text, it, it does start to melt your brain really, really fast. Yeah. <laughs> so we should explain like the deal with Sense8 yeah, for sure. the listener. So Sense8 is a story about people who... Are really hot. Sorry. Sorry. People who are really hot, (laughs) yes. But also these hot people can experience each other's physical senses. Okay. I guess is the word. Uh And emotional senses. And can effectively be with someone in the place they are without physically being in that place. Yeah. The idea is that I don't remember the impetus for what happens and like how a cluster is formed. I just know that someone who is a sensate, which is they eventually describe like a subspecies of human, right, can birth a cluster. Yes. And it, that yeah. cluster will be a cluster of eight people who have the same birthday, which is an interesting little thing. The, not you know, just the, the same birthday. They were born in the same moment and they took their first the breath first together. Breath. Yeah. Which is something we explore pretty deeply in the um, New Year's special. <laughs> Happy fucking New Year. And when Matt says pretty deeply, he, he when he's really burying the lead here. You do see the birth scenes um, for yes. all of those people. Like, all of those people being birthed into the world in many different ways. Um, mm-hmm. So, and yeah. this, this is a show um, that also like, I think very interestingly doesn't shy. It like, it is not gratuitous, but it also is graphic, right? Like 
It, okay, it is sometimes sexually gratuitous. I, I'm talking about the violence Great. is not gratuitous or like the gore is not gratuitous, but it is accurate, right? Like when right. when there are birth scenes or death scenes or or like physical violence, there is gore, um, but it, it doesn't ever feel overdone. It doesn't feel right. gory. You're not watching a slasher film yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now the sex is a little over the top sometimes. Sometimes, but, uh, sometimes that board. is that is gratuitous. <laughs> I was talking and I yeah. was like, "There is gratuitous sex." Sorry, yeah, yeah that is. <laughs> but it takes this idea um, of people being able to mentally be in a space with someone else and physically feel those feelings um, to some crazy places. One of my favorite early scenes in this show is when Wolfgang, one of the Sense Eight cluster that we're following, the August Eighth cluster, he's sitting at this cafe in Germany and Kala, his cluster mate and also off and on again, lover uh, from India visits and they're talking about like where they are and describing the senses that they're having, even though they both know that they are sharing all of those sets of senses and sensations together at that moment. At the same time, you're watching that and you're like, wait, why is Kala's hair wet? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because she's experiencing as if as if she were there, yeah. but she's not. She's there, having the right? sensory experience of her hair being wet. Yeah. Right. I the, but back in India, he's there with her and her hair's not wet in those seats, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I that's so funny. I I love many of these scenes where they're doing that kind of exchange, right? Of the you know, Riley um, and Van Damme, right? Doing the Eric mm-hmm. Kefius, like, it's so warm here. It's so cold mm-hmm. where you are, right? Um, but my favorite one is actually also a Kala Wolfgang scene, and it is in the second season, and maybe it's in Happy Fucking New Year, uh, in the snow, where Kala says she's never seen snow before, and they mm-hmm. are like r- laughing and like playing in the snow together. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that one is particularly fun because the show has finally started to sort of peel back the layer on like what it looks like when someone is visiting with their sensate mm-hmm. cluster, which is like, if you're visiting someone, you're talking to yourself, like, and making the actions that you're doing physically, mm-hmm. but the person that you're visiting is not. And so right. it's like, you know, he's like, they're like making out and he's just like making out with the air. And it's just, it's, right. it's very funny. Um, but I, and so I particularly like that one because they've like, excuse me, peeled off that like last layer of, mm-hmm. of the, like the, the parts of it that are like really, I guess, sorry, let me back up. What I really like about it is they, they peeled back that like last layer of the allure, right. To be like, here's mm-hmm. just the, it does make you look crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's very alluring and fun. You know, yeah, there's a, cer- there's a scene early on in season one where will, and it's like the first time that will and Riley kiss, um, Riley's at that bar in Iceland. Yeah. Um, and Will's still in Chicago doing cop things, right? As and, he does. Yeah. And he's like making out with her. And then his partner walks in. It's like, what the fuck are you doing, Gorski? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love that scene with, with the snow because they start a snowball fight and they start it by Kala throwing a snowball at him while he's in India. 
or while she's in India and he's the one in Germany. Yeah. And it's like, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to let it happen. Yeah. Right. Because it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, it's supposed to not make sense. It's supposed to be reality bending, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because the whole point is like that these people are bending reality around them to -hmm. connect through. I mean, and this is where we could like get into the lore. That's like not super important. Right. The point is they're bending reality to connect with each other. Right. However, Mm -hmm. that is happening. Right. Like to seek these deep connections that they feel. Right. And actually also there's another Kala scene that I really love where when she's finally trying to explain to the man that she's supposed to and then does eventually marry Rajan, who is not a sensate in her cluster, right? Like, where she's trying to, how she explains it to him, right? There are these people all over the world who have less than me, who need me, who need my help, who need my love, who need my support, who need my care, who don't have these things or do have these things. And, like, the way that she explains it, it is so different from the way that the the others explain it, right? Like they start with the, I am connected to these specific people and I can see them, hear them, experience the things that they feel. They start from such a practical place of describing the experience. And she starts from such like a, an emotional place of like, and, mm-hmm. and that's like very much her character, right? She's very mm-hmm. emotionally connected to each of these people. Um, and, I just, I love the way that she describes that experience of being sensate and like the feeling and experiencing the things that they need and want and desire. This is a perfect lead in, I think, to talking about who the cluster that we follow Ugh. is. So we've got Kala, right? Um, she's a pharmacist and she uh, is in India, uh, I believe in Mumbai. And like the setup for her in season one is that she's um, engaged to marry Rajan and you know, pretty immediately is introduced to Wolfgang by the, the cluster being birthed. And it's this whole like love triangle thing, which the show fully delivers on. Yeah. Just to put it out there. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, Wolfgang, yeah. right? Uh, he's in Berlin. He is a mobster and a safe cracker. Um, and he has some of the biggest action scenes in the entire show. He, at one point sends a rocket launcher at this car full of these guys that just tried to kill him. Yeah. We have uh, one of my favorite characters, Lito Rodriguez, um, who lives in Mexico city. Um, (sighs) He lives with his boyfriend, uh, Hernando and um, also their friend, Danny. And his whole thing is that he's a famous actor and the world doesn't know that he's gay. That's wrong. His whole thing is that he is so hot. True. Also, they use any excuse to show his ass. He, the, the, Lido is a person who, okay, all of them are hot. I, the, I know this is just going to become a thing that I, I'm just talking about for the rest of this episode because this show is also so horny. Like, like mm-hmm. it needs to be clear that this is a very horny show. Um, Lido is just so hot. And like, and I mean, Hernando is not, not hot, not, not hot, not, not hot. (laughs) It's truly wild. He's like, truly, I I feel like both the character and the actor are so magnetic, right? It like really pulls it together and, and, and makes you see how someone who looks like him, right, could become an actor. Anyway, okay, I'll I'll let you continue introducing our cast of characters before I continue to just ramble on about how hot I find all of them. (laughs) 
Uh, we have Riley Blue, who we mentioned earlier. Um, she's a DJ from Iceland. She starts out the show living in London and has, I think, one of the most tragic backstories of this entire show to the point that it's one of the few things that I've texted you about while watching the show again. It's absolutely um, fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, really, I had to skip a lot of the scenes yeah. uh, in that episode because I couldn't handle it. Um, I often describe the show as like 45 minutes of bleak, bleak followed by like 10 minutes of utter bliss. Yeah. And they just do that pattern to you over and over and over again. And um, the thing I'm thinking of when I talk about bleak is often Riley's backstory. Yeah. You have Sun, who is a uh, businesswoman in Seoul, um, working for her family company. Um, She kind of gets, she takes the fall for some um, like financial um, crimes that her brother has done, I believe, um, and spends a lot of the series in prison. You also um, forgot that she is an absolute fighting master, an absolute martial ass. arts machine. Sun is the most hardcore character I have ever seen on a show. Ironically, I think only rivaled by Michelle Yeoh, the captain role that she plays in Star Trek Discovery in terms of just Mm. being like stone cold, like hard ass bitch, like son in multiple scenes just punches the fucking wall. Like just, 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 just to punch it. (laughs) Most of happy fucking new year, which is this two hour, like new year special that opens season two is her punching walls. Or people. Yeah, or or kicking the wall. Sometimes not punching yeah, it. Yeah, or kicking the wall. Um, <laughs> in fact, she's kicking the wall and like the guard is like... Uh, that's, that's government you know, property. Government property. And then she kicks the wall again. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, My favorite son thing is that she does eventually escape prison and there's this uh, like hot police guy that's like chasing after her. And after you learned that the first time she had sex was after a like martial arts match with the guy she competed against, she then spends an entire season fighting this hot cop dude that eventually she gets together with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she really likes, she knows what she likes and that's someone who can, uh, beat her up but she can still win in the fight. So exactly. Um, okay. And listen, everyone's got their thing. Got um, our last two here. We do. Uh, I'll do will first. Cause I got to okay. talk about Nomi, yeah. but will is oh. a Chicago police officer. Um, his dad was a cop. He's now a cop. Um, and, uh, you know, will has grown on me but I find him to be the most boring character of the cluster. Yeah. He really grows on me in season two where he's doing other things. Yeah. Yeah. Will is sort of your, like the, the character that you know, or you're familiar with. He's sort of boy next door caretaker for his dad. Who's a mean old drunk, you know, the kinds of things that, you expect from someone who's a mm-hmm. ch- cop from Chicago. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. And, and I think the actor who portrays Will does a really good job of, of selling that and making it convincing. And Will is a really good entry point, I think for the viewer of like how to grapple with this kind of story. I um, you know, Will and Riley are sort of your main characters that you're introduced to, or sort of mm-hmm. like the primary characters of this cluster. And I think that like, I understand why the story chose that. And they're, relationship as like the faded duo of the group that is at the centerpiece of the story. But I do think that it does sort of a disservice to some of the other duos that form over time, 
you know, the, uh, the, the version of this story where Wolfgang and Kala are at the center of it rather than Riley and Will is maybe more interesting to me. But I yeah. also say that as someone who finds this entire story to be extremely compelling and delicious. Yeah. Like, so yeah, I also realized I, we forgot Kathy is who we'll talk about, yes, but I want to yeah. say that, um, that, um, I agree. And also this show has made me interested in its straight romances in a way that like most other pieces of media don't. It's also, well, this brings up an interesting question, Matt. Are <laughs> there, are there romances straight? Right, because they are... Because, like, the thing is, is that... Those are queer people at the end of the day, right? (laughs) Also, in these straight romances, there is, on more than one occasion, they either... They they have, um... I guess maybe we could call them, like, emotional orgies. Like, I don't really know how Mm -hmm. to explain a metaphysical orgy that is depicted (laughs) as a literal orgy. But, like, on more than one occasion, all of the characters are having sex with each other simultaneously. Because they might be having sex separately with other people. But they're all feeling the sex that they're they're having. they're all feeling each other's... Yeah. And they depict that visually as them literally in a pile of bodies. Yes. On more than one There's, occasion, again. Yeah. <laughs> I like was watching Happy Fucking New Year earlier, and I just was laughing. Because I was like, one, this is hot. But also, two, this is so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, it's like indiscriminate with who is engaging with who. Correct, yeah. Right? Um, that In that scene that I was just talking about, Caffius, the bus driver um, from, where's he from? Um, Nairobi. Nairobi. Yeah. So in that scene, Caffius, the bus driver from Nairobi and Wolfgang have this very intense, like we are about to kiss each other and are looking each other in the eye and then just like fully making out with each other while they're also like grabbing body parts of other people. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, And like every other scene with Wolfgang and Caffius does nothing to say anything about their sexuality other than like these people like women. Yeah. Right. Um, but you're right that like I can talk about Riley and will as a straight romance, but like in reality, the actions of both of those people it, and, and the things that we see them engage in don't necessarily tell that story. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why I'm into it. Cause it's like, it's like, I'm actually into this cause these are queer people in a relationship and, and that's interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way they are kind of just a, a really, really connected polycule. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So Caffius, who we've just described, yeah. he's, uh, this, uh, bus driver, uh, in Nairobi, his, um, his story is very much about him protecting uh, his mother who's suffering from AIDS and who he's trying to make sure that she has medicine um, that uh, doesn't make her sicker. Yeah. And then we have Nomi who alongside Lido is like top tier yeah. um, cluster member for me. Yeah. Um, she's an activist hacker in San Francisco. Um, she has a rad girlfriend named Amanita who's played by Frida, uh, Frida Aguiman. Um, and, uh, core to her character is that she's a trans woman and um the first like four or five episodes of season one are just like difficult because mm-hmm. the sort of like undercurrent of this show for people that haven't seen it is that since eights are this you know kind of offshoot of humans and there's a group of people that are going after them for some shady reasons that don't really get described early on that you know i won't um spoil here but the way they do that is by finding these people when they're in like 
shitty situations. Yeah. And essentially kidnapping them. Yeah. So Nomi ends up in a hospital and then is told she needs to have a procedure, which is essentially going to lobotomize her. Yeah. Right. Um, And it's, it's absolutely speaking to the ways that in the past we've very much explicitly treated Mm -hmm. queer people and trans people specifically, but also like the ways that in maybe more, um, not as not as obvious ways that we do the same to people today, right? Yeah. I, I think as we're saying specifically, like, so you should know that the main character, like, the main villain um, is nicknamed Whispers, and I'll just call him Whispers mm-hmm. for the sake of, of this episode. But, you know, I think it's actually really notable, too. In those scenes, it's never made clear that the person that is keeping Nomi hostage to lobotomize her is driven by whispers or whether it is made clear that her parents are wealthy and like Mm -hmm. have money and connections. Like it's never made clear whether her parents are paying this, whether it's like a backwards hospital caregiver situation. I say backwards, but like a caregiver who's willing to mm-hmm. again caregiver i'm so mm-hmm. <laughs> fuck we know you my mean. words yes yeah yes sorry like whether they paid off this doctor to hold her hostage and lobotomize her because right. of those reasons or if, if it's because whispers right like and and it becomes i think implied that it is because she is a sensate that they are doing this right. to her but i do think that it's worth like it, it's notable to me that they are never explicit they never find out for sure that Medsker was working for Whispers. Um, right. And I, I think that that, like, matters in this story. I will also say that, like, in reference to those first four or five episodes, um, th- those were some of the only episodes that I texted you about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I thought back, I actually don't think that I have watched, rewatched this show since the finale came out, and that would have been in 20... 20- Eighteen, okay, twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. So I haven't wa- rewatched this since the finale came out. I watched it, rewatched it right before the finale, but that means that I I had only been out as non-binary maybe like for like six months, a year when the finale came out. So when I was first watching this, like mm-hmm. I was not moving through the world as like a trans person, and mm-hmm. rewatching those first four or five episodes now as like a 34-year-old trans person, like in the political climate that we live in now also, like where there are these like escalating attacks and like limitations and like this erosion of rights. Uh hit really different really really Mm -hmm. fucked me up like really like had me ugly crying about and and i think like the other parts of the show that are these underlying narratives that are important right like nomi and amanita are frequently helped by other queer people it is other queer people Mm -hmm. who keep them safe who shelter them who hide them from the authorities who help them stay secret and stay safe and here what they're not hiding from are their identities right they're not being hunted for their identities but it feels similar and familiar to what the experience of being, well, I guess Nomi is being hunted for her identity as a sensate, not as a trans woman mm-hmm. by right. whispers. Now her parents are definitely hunting her because of her identity as a trans woman. But anyway, right. So she, her, her parents are awful. Um, and in those, in those first few episodes, she's dead named by her mom, like every five seconds, basically all while they're like trying to, you know, lobotomize her. Um, 
for theoretically being a sensate, but you're right that it's never explicitly said. Oh, I just want to like call out some important side characters. Freema Agumon, Amanita, to to lighten things up a little bit, has a killer scene where she uh, breaks Nomi out of the hospital that yeah. is basically a prison for yeah. her. Um, it fucking rules. We also, I think my favorite is uh is Danny um Lido and Hernando's um friend slash like third third like it's definitely like a polycule situation she's at their one point. third for sure <laughs> yeah like we're introduced to her as Lido's beard essentially yeah um that he legitimately hires for the purpose of being his beard because he's a famous actor yeah. in Mexico um and then she just starts hanging out with him as their friend and then there's a time where they're like having sex in front of her and she's taking photos, which comes back to bite them. And then it's just like, from then on, they're just kind of like in a relationship. Yeah. Like they don't ever like physically engage in sex with her as far as I remember. Right. But like they're having sex. Yeah. No, she no, no, is no. there. Yes. Like, she is there. She's enjoying herself. They're enjoying themselves. Even if they're not physically touching each Correct. other. They are they are having a form of sex, and it is a situation where, like, okay, you're living together, you all love each other, you have an intimate relationship. This is a relationship, even if it's never called that. Yeah, she. I mean, she says it um, in the episode where she finds out about Hernando. She says it's just that, like, this is so hot. I love gay porn. Um, yeah. <laughs> so she she like makes it really clear that she's like this is. The ideal scenario for me, actually, I'd not like to be in a relationship with anyone other than you two. This is ideal for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, I actually think that like one of the things about this show is like, yes, it is sexually explicit and therefore it's not for like teenagers or or whatever, Mm -hmm. or however you want to think about that. People who are not ready to watch this level of sex, regardless of their age, shouldn't watch this show. Right. But like Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think when I watch the show all the time is like, this is the, the version of like how to diversify your cast without making it like slamming you over the head by being like, here is my non-binary best friend who uses they, them pronouns and their name is frog. Like whatever. (laughs) Sorry. Shout out to all the frogs. uh, Frogs. I mean, that's a cool name. If that's your name, I like that for you. I I love frogs. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Um, check out our friend's podcast, frog of the week. (laughs) You can find find it on the worst garbage online. Um, Anyway. Okay. It feels real and true because it is real and true. This is just a story about people who happen to be from Mm. different backgrounds. And it does that extremely successfully. You get to see it in really cool ways with Amanita's story. You get to see it in really cool ways with Caffius's story. You get to see it in really cool ways with who gets their moment to shine in the sun and like what the things are that they do and how those things are boosted and amplified by their identities. Not um, like done in spite of or because of inherently right and like it's mm-hmm. it's just really it is a show that is diverse without being cringy does that is yeah. that like yeah. like i never I i'm never rolling my eyes you know that they're that you know they're making these declarations of identity or emphasizing why things are important to them i mean part of kala's storyline is very interestingly a storyline about religious freedom right like mm-hmm. and is a storyline about the westernization of india right and the mm-hmm. remo- like the tension cultural tensions between people who want to westernize away from hindu religions and and mm-hmm. hindu faith practices and like 
Kala's a believer in Ganesh and she prays to Ganesh mm-hmm. at her local temple and that creates challenges for her, right? Like that's not a story that we often get to see front and center. And it's a great way to talk about a very real political tension that exists in a, like in a way that most people wouldn't usually get an insight into the story without it well, being ham fisted. I think that this is also the first time that I personally saw polyamory on screen in a way that wasn't, like big love mm. polygamy mm-hmm. type stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it was, it was the first time that I saw this idea that there are even beyond gender and sexual orientation, there are different ways to make up a relationship. Um, I was aware of that in the yeah. world. I just had not seen it depicted in a way that um, was with characters I cared about or people I cared about. Um and one of the, we hinted at this earlier, but one of the, I think, most effective bits of storytelling is frankly, like, in, like, the last few scenes in the finale movie with Rajan and Wolfgang and Kala, right? This thing that has been a love triangle for the entire series doesn't get tied up, but it takes a very clear step towards, like, oh, I think everyone's down. Yeah. Right? Like, this doesn't have to be your typical will they, won't they, one of you is going to win kind of thing, which I get a little tired of. Like I, we talk about bones randomly a lot on this show, but um, (laughs) I loved bones, but the will they, won't they of those two wasn't necessarily a love triangle, but I just got sick of it. And like love triangles are an extension of that same feeling to me to the point I just get tired of them. Yeah. Um, And so this show is like, oh yeah, we've given you a love triangle, but the way we're going to resolve it is not a way that you've seen on television before. Yeah. And I think that like, it also is, I think that there's something really cool and unique because for each of these characters, the moment where they were in the cluster, the moment where they choose to reveal to the person that they trust who is not in the cluster, like, I think a cool thing about the show is that never goes bad for them. Like, like, and, and when I say that, I, I don't mean that it like is super successful and everybody's like, Oh wow. I can't believe that you're telling me this thing that I've also always known is true. But like mm-hmm. people, trust them believe them they have these relationships and like what it speaks to is this like uh, view of the world that says we all have the choice to like expand our minds when offered the opportunity right and -hmm. it tells that story over and over again right the sensates get their minds opened and expanded by learning about each other's existence and like i think the implication there is maybe kala wouldn't have considered that version like that as a possibility for her life right if she hadn't been introduced to the possibility right if she hadn't been introduced to the person who would might make that possible for her right and like it's a really cool way to think about like expanding narratives and expanding minds beyond like the text is saying think bigger, think smaller, right? Like the text mm-hmm. of the movie is saying, or the show, you know, in the movie special finale, special, whatever in that case, right? Mm-hmm. Like is saying something about how we grow closer together instead of farther apart. I think maybe yeah. I, people, so to get, to go from there to the thing I want to say, that is a way that people that show up for each other, right. Um, and a way that, um, these characters are willing to um, have the benefit of the doubt for each other. Um, I love that, for example, you talked about people sharing the the sensate reality mm-hmm. uh, with their loved ones. Nomi never keeps it a secret from Amanita. Yeah. 
the moment she knows, I'm gonna need a dose. Yeah. Right? And that's very in line with their characters. Yeah. Kala is the last Sensate Cluster member to share with her loved ones. And it's like between the season two finale and the movie, it's like off screen. Yeah. She tells Rajan like what's going on and he's down. He's like, okay, sure. I don't get it, but you spend a lot of that movie (laughs) watching Rajan like grapple with it. It's kind of funny. Um, But one of the ways that like they stick up for each other is by using their gifts to like, they're just talents, right. To help each other out. So you talked about son being just a badass fighter, right? There's, there's a scene where Nomi's running away from people, right? Um, she's running away from BPO agents. You don't need to know what BPO is. I'm not going to bother with that. But, um, and she's like, I don't fucking know how to fight, but I'm surrounded. And both Sun and Will show up and essentially like take over her body, which I forget what they call that. It's not visiting. It's something else. But it's it's something that these people can do for each other, which is basically inhabit each other. And use their skills. And Nomi kicks these guys' asses as Sun and Will. And it's fucking incredible. Yeah. She does it. Uh, Sun does it for, for Cassius as well several times because he's God. dealing with some gang members in Nairobi. If they need people to drive, uh, Cassius will drive. Yeah. Or, or Wolfgang will, yeah. will drive for them. If there's a gun involved, Wolfgang's usually there. Yeah. You know, there's one of my favorite scenes is the party that Rajon throws for Kala. Oh. And you see Kala walk up to the DJ stand and you're like, what? And you realize it's Riley. Yeah. Because <laughs> Riley's a DJ and, and like Rajon loses his fucking mind. He's like, this is so cool. My wife rules. Yeah. I, one, I just generally love Rajon. Like, I feel so yeah. sad for him in season one because like the whole thing, right, is if you haven't watched it is that Kala thinks that she doesn't love him to marry him because she can see Wolfgang and she knows that she's in love with Wolfgang mm-hmm. in a very specific way. Um, and we have, as we've said, the resolution is delightful and that she realizes she can love both of them. Um, mm-hmm. But Rajan is just like so, he's so sweet and he's so gentle and he loves her so much. And I feel so sad for him in the first season because like, it's not like a situation where, you know, she doesn't love him because he sucks. <laughs> he <laughs> really, he really doesn't suck. Um, anyway. He doesn't suck at all. <laughs> so, I mean, he runs a shady business and does some true, shady stuff with his dad. True. But he's a gentle, sweet man. Yes. Yeah. And, and he listens and changes and grows. And those are the, those are the important mm-hmm. things, right? So I think the other thing that I, I, I thought you were going to say, one of my favorite scenes where they're inhabiting each other is the Wolfgang Leto shootout where, oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, you know, their Leto is ac- an action star, right? So he's on a movie set doing this like final take of this big shootout and Wolfgang is actually in a fucking shootout and they're mm-hmm. each like you know they're they're a scene where Lido is like he's slide he's sliding on his knees like shooting mm-hmm. sideways yeah. <laughs> um anyway that that's one of my favorites where because it's a rare i think it's also like a rare one where what's happening there in terms of like the skill exchange is they have the same skill and they're doing it together mm-hmm. rather than like borrowing the skill. So like often you see right. Sun borrowing the skill or like Leto when Leto gets outed later 
mm-hmm. and gets like locked out of evicted from his apartment, right? You know, yeah, Wolfgang shows yeah, Wolfgang shows up and cuts the, you know, cuts the box to let them in, right? And so yeah. like it usually that exchange is about like, oh, or when Kala shows up and like makes the bomb for Wolfgang, right? Like this is mm-hmm. the I have the knowledge that you don't and I can help you get through this scenario. I love the shootout because it's the we are sharing the same moment and the same experience. And Leto's is like not technically real the same skill, mm-hmm. but he does like have the, he ha- he has the charisma that mm-hmm. Wolfgang needs in the moment to pull that off. And like, that's right. the share, that's the skill share there. And one way he, he shares later where it's a single direction, right? Um, is when Wolfgang is, uh, it's right before the rocket launcher <laughs> yeah. where he's like approaching those guys. Right. And they're like there to kick his ass and, and, and maybe kill him. And he says something to the effect of like, um, maybe it's tell them what they want to hear or something like that. And he takes over an ax for him. Yeah. He, he says, basically like, he says you should lies. lie to save your life. And he says, I can't yes. lie because he reminds him of my father. And yeah. uh, Leto's like, Oh, I can lie. Lying is what I do. Yeah. And he just, he basically does. He becomes an actor for him, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, it's a really good scene. I particularly love, there's an escape sequence in episode 12 of season one. Ugh. And the whole point of this, it's, it's like half the episode, but the whole point of the sequence is that each of the characters gets to show off their skill. I love it. As the scene goes on. And like, there's a, there's a couple little moments. And then there's this part, where uh, Will walks around a corner and then runs back and he goes, shit, four guards. And then Sun walks on screen and goes, is that all? And just ruins them. Wrecks it. Wrecks shot. <laughs> like, she is, oh God, she's so stone cold. I also love mm-hmm. that uh, in season one, when her, her the, like the bond that her and Caffius have, right, of like, um, later it's revealed like um, Bo- Caffius's father was also murdered, right? Son's father was murdered while she was in prison by her brother. Um, like they have these like connections in their story that link them. Um, they're sort of our like unlikely pair that get paired up a lot in the first season. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love the moments where he's like, <laughs> praying to the, the late the the spirit of like the Jean-Claude Van Damme Korean <laughs> lady which is what he calls her um which I just think is so so funny um and like what a fun little moment too when he tells Jella he's like oh I see a Korean woman I like that's mm-hmm. I actually think that that's the cheesiest version of the like telling the loved one story is the reintroduction mm-hmm. of Caffius and Jella when he's saying like that he can see the spirit of this woman who is here. But I Mm -hmm. also love it so much because, you know, so much of season one's version of sun is as I, as we said, hardcore stone cold, like absolutely killer, but she's also very sad. She's going through something very terrible in her life, being incarcerated, being separated, like being betrayed by her family, getting unbetrayed by her family, like this emotional turmoil we don't get to see her smile a lot or have moments of joy a lot. And by the end of the first season, her situation in prison has changed and she's been released back into general population. And so then at the beginning of season two, this version of sun that we get to see is her like having experienced kindness from some of the other women who are incarcerated with her 
and like her freeing herself from the burden and the like burden of like the role that she had taken on in her family and like some of this and you just like get to see her smile and like laugh with Caffius and be like oh yes I am the spirit of that Korean lady that you can see right like doing this little <laughs> joke bit and so it's both like the one time where I'm like a little bit eye roll worthy but also it's like a sweet moment of sun that you don't often get to see it's funny you mentioned that first season you get like really common pairings you get caffius and sun you get will and riley of course you get kala and wolfgang but then season two immediately kicks off with like hey you've never seen this pairing before yeah you get kala and sun which is a weird combo yeah right um i love that stuff i love when they introduce like hey we've never done these two before oh i like the confusion that is present for them too right they know that they are they have access to each other but they are asking why am i with you what is it mm-hmm. like? What is it about us that's connecting us right now? I love that scene with Kala and Sun because Sun is like, you know why you're here, right? Like you know what, yeah. what you, like you know what's it's up. Very, right? like, it's very like it's very like you 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 know what you have to do, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's giving the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think the best scenes though are when the cluster is together all at once. Anytime they are all on screen, I am laughing, crying, just like having so much fun with them. Any scene where four or more of them are there is just, it's electric. I think one of the things that's like about the show is like, the casting is amazing because everybody is extremely good in their roles. Everybody, it's like so well acted. It's so well written. It has all of these things. But this casting director, this casting team deserves many full kisses on the mouth from me for finding a cast that has so much chemistry. I didn't think it was Mm -hmm. possible for eight people to have that much chemistry, but like when they are the ensemble scenes are hands down the best scenes. And it's not even just limited to the eight people having chemistry. Add Freema, yeah, Freema Agamon mm-hmm. there in there, right? Add Ranjan in there. Add these other side characters mm-hmm. in there who add, like, create such a rich text of these characters. It is when they are all together. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the first time outside of, like, sex scenes that we see them all together, all together, is, like, the last shot of season one. Um it's that escape. It's right after that escape sequence. Yeah. Essentially, you know, on the boat, Riley had been captured, and and um, they had to get her out. And they get on this boat, and Will's in a bad way. And they kind of pan back from Riley and Will, and you see the other six of them sitting there, like watching, making sure that they're okay. And it is, I want to say, devastating, but also, I was elated. I was yeah. like vibrating with excitement with the fact that they were all on screen in the same place. And the first time that they get together physically is at the end of season two. Yeah. Right. They're never in the same physical place until the end of season two, which I think is like really, really good pacing on the part of the team Mm -hmm. doing the writing. Yeah. Um, You, you very quickly see them visiting each other um, using their sensate abilities um after that time on the boat um in fact happy fucking new year is full of them and yeah. they're always these like there's like one every 10 minutes like the pace yeah. is a little faster in that one they're like very intentionally trying to get you excited um but i love that scene in that one where they're like dancing 
Um, and uh, especially the parts where they're in Sun's yeah. uh, cell. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's really good. It's so good. And it's so, I think it just like is, it, it somehow so perfectly captures like what it is like to be having fun in those moments. And like, I think also mm-hmm. like the experience of like flashing through memories of like, moments of like joy with people that you've experienced. I think like one of the things that I have been thinking about a a lot lately, because I watched some videos where people are talking about this like concept of like thinking and memory, right? Like that, like when you think about something, what you're doing is recalling all of the times that you have seen or experienced that thing before. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, that's how, Oh, perfect. Thumbs up. (laughs) Um, that's how a lot of how I think about the world and, and how I move through the world. And so that, that, that is like that. I love the way that it flashes through like, like memories, you know? Well, and the matrix four is all about memory and fiction and, and, you know, (laughs) the difference between memory and reality and fiction. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, it's unsurprising that Lana's interested in, in like the same things, uh, across literally the next project she worked on. Yeah. A thing that this show is doing that I find a lot of shows are chasing and don't always land is being a show about joy. Mm. Right. Like it's clear. I'm going to say this is my experience. My experience is that this show is about those moments of, of bliss that I talked about. Yeah. You need, the bleak parts and you need the action sequences right to get there. But the show is about those moments where you're like cheering on people for just being happy. Yeah. Right. Like you're, you are excited because it's their birthday. Yeah. <laughs> right? You're excited because they all got together in one spot. Like that to me is like why the show exists. And the rest is just like getting, getting you on the path to those moments. Yeah. In the same way, the matrix resurrections is about Trinity and Neo mm-hmm. finally being together mm-hmm. for good. Yeah. Right. You talked about the moment in the cafe where they're struggling to, to touch each other. Right. For me, a, a, an equally powerful moment is when they are pulled out of the matrix and they look each other in the eyes for the first time yeah. in like 60 years. Yeah. Right. And, like, kiss on that ship. Yeah. Like, that. that's the stuff that, like, you've been working towards the whole time. And the reason Sense8 works is because it does that several times over two seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, like, the thing that is, like, under uh, underlying both of these for me is, like, these are character-driven stories, right? And that that mm-hmm. that is something that we don't get a lot of at the pace that either of these stories happen at. So often when we think of, like, character dramas, we think of things that are slow, that are arduous, where there is, like, long moments of time for you as the viewer to, like, ponder with this character as they sort through whatever emotional turmoil they're dealing with right and um that's not what the pacing of this show is at all but it is a character driven show in fact very little plot really happens like between the beginning of season one and the end 
of the movie, you know, addendum even. Like, the amount of time covered and, like, the actual sequencing of events and the things that have happened are pretty limited, right? The majority of the story, as you said, is in is in the connection, is in those moments of joy, is in them learning and, like, tapping into the parts of themselves that allow them to survive those terrible things, right? Like the I will always find you, I will always love you, I will always be here for you themes, right, of this show of found family and connection, that is where the story is happening, not in the you know, the there you you literally were able to say, like, we can have a coherent conversation about the show without ever you don't need to know about BPO. That's actually unimportant yeah. to the story. The plot is not the important part. It is the characters. It is the stories they are telling each other about themselves. Um, and I think that that's really true in, in Matrix Resurrections. It is a character-driven story. It is a character-driven story about Neo and Trinity. It is not about the Matrix, right? Yeah. Now, I will say the Matrix does a better job of making its like in-universe lore make sense. Sure. Yeah. Fair. Right? Um, <laughs> since eight, if you think too hard about BPO and like what their mission is, it kind of falls apart. Yeah. But like you shouldn't, you shouldn't do Don't that do with it. Sense eight, frankly. Um, the Matrix, I get it. That's the first three went really deep on that. So like they had to follow it up in some way. Um, but you're right. It's not about that. Right. Yeah. I do think it's cool that we know like what happened between the machines and humans yeah. uh, and, and Cynthia's so as they are, they're called right after Neo and Trinity saved the day, but it's not strictly necessary for me to enjoy that movie. Exactly. And I mean, I think that that's like, it's worth saying that like, even if you've never seen the first three matrix movies, matrix resurrection stands on its own as a text. It's enriched by you having seen the first three movies to get the referential moments, but it's it's an enrichment. It's not required viewing before you can participate in the story that's being told in Matrix Matrix Resurrections. And I like actually think that that's pretty true of any sort of like penultimate ultimate episodes. Like you could watch the last two episodes of season one. You could watch just Happy Fucking New Year, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the stories would still make sense because they give you the context about what sensates you. You never like they tell you like sensates can connect each other to with each other mind to mind and share skills and information in the first episode. And then there's not really anything more to it. than <laughs> Right. And they do it, by the way, in a single scene where Jonas is driving for Will. Correct. Jonas is a character. You don't need to know who he is, but he, he exists. He's out there. He's a sensate in a different cluster. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's they, they explain all that as they need to and they don't explain what they don't need to. Really great video essay about the show by Lady Knight the Brave. Yeah. Um, and uh, I forget the phrase that they, uh, that she uses for, what is it? Something about, don't worry about it. It's Tuesday. That's what it is. That's the phrase that they use for, um, for like, basically, I don't know, like the example of like Kala throwing a snowball. Don't worry about it. It's Tuesday. Hand right? wave it like, away. Hand wave it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like it, the show works for that. Um, I also, I can't leave this conversation without bringing up, like a scene with you, which is the Nomi and Leto scene in the museum. I, okay. I've, I feel like I've done such a good job of not crying on this (laughs) podcast yet. So to set it up, Leto and Hernando and Danny live together. We've explained their relationship. Danny has an abusive ex who has 
showed up to Leto's place and basically threatened to out him. And through a variety of things, um, Danny ends up going back to this guy because um, he finds the pictures of, you know, the first time that they were all sexual together that she took of him and Hernando having sex. Um, And he basically threatens to send them to the press because, you know, Leto's a famous actor. And what happens is Danny basically says, like, don't worry about it. I want to protect you. I get it. <laughs> like, watching, I'm like, I get why Leto would make the decision yeah. to say, okay, well, you've made that choice. And, like, I feel like I have to accept it because you're telling me that's what you want. And it would be really bad for me if you didn't. Yeah. Right. And so he chooses to accept that that's what she wants. And to let her be in an unsafe situation. And while he's filming, Hernando comes to him and basically says that he's leaving him. And he ends up in this museum where they went on like one of their first dates. The Diego Rivera Museum. Yes. He ends up in the Diego Rivera Museum um, remembering that first date and generally feeling like, what the fuck have I done? And Nomi shows up to comfort him and... I think it is really what's really interesting for me is that Nomi, while her parents are are wealthy and she comes from a particular background, is far more vulnerable than Leto is. Right? Yeah. Leto is a wealthy actor, right? Um, and as much as like this can ruin his career and his life, she's literally like sleeping on people's couches to uh <laughs> um, you know, escape being kidnapped because of who she is and she still manages to comfort him and advise him in a way that is exemplary of like her sisterhood to him as like a member of their cluster. Right. And also as just like queer family. Yeah. And it like, fully makes me weep because there's so many there's multiple levels of um familial care and understanding and guidance right yeah that i don't know this show is it's a it's about queer people even if the people aren't like explicitly queer the way that we define that and it's why it's that is a reason why it resonates with me right um and this scene is the clearest version of that for me Because it's directly calling out the things that it's representative of. Yeah. I mean, I think what's so funny to me is this scene does really is, is very touching to me. And really I do, I do love it. But what breaks me is, um, so basically because of the conversation that Lido and Nomi have, Lido decides that he has to do something different. He has made his mistake Mm -hmm. and he needs to, Go make it right. And part of making it right for him is choosing to come out um, and choosing Mm -hmm. to accept those risks himself. And for me, it's the next time that he connects with Nomi where she says, I hope that what I said to you didn't make you do anything that you didn't want to do. I hope that. Oh, my God. and, And it is genuinely like it's so heartbreaking because she is so gentle and kind with him about 
the choice that he made has the choices that he's made to stay closeted to keep himself safe, to keep his loved ones safe. Like, and I think that, you know, it's really, it's easy to say you should like for people who have lived out of the closet for a long time, it is easy to say it is hard. It is not always fun. It is always worth it. You should do it. And Mm -hmm. we don't often, we often take validation away from people who choose to not live their lives out and and i i think it's like such a complicated conversation it's treated with such grace and kindness here there's no shame hernando is never like seen pressuring him like it's clear that he doesn't agree but he understands and he cares about his relationship and so he is like endures the pain of being in secret right and it doesn't it's it's not without challenge in their relationship it's a i I don't know well and even even when he leaves him it's not pressuring right the the reason he leaves him is i can't be a part of this yeah right this is a decision you've made that i can't be a part of i get why you made that decision but i'm not going to be here for it and it's not he's hurt right he's not angry yeah he's not saying i don't like you anymore he's not answering phone calls but like you're not obligated to yeah um but the show is very understanding about um, about having a personal decision about if that's the right choice for you. And I agree. You don't often see a story where there is a good reason, right, yeah. for someone to um, continue living with that secret. Yeah. Um, and I, frankly, Leto has a good reason. He has yeah. sort of something forcing him on the other side now. Um, but, um, you know, I, sorry to, to lighten it a little bit. The the thing that falls out from this is that, um, uh, his apartment gets, uh, taken away from him that he's renting because the landlord doesn't want to rent to queers basically. Yeah. Um, and he goes home to his mother's for, um, for Christmas and they show up at the house. This woman, puts on like a dramatic fucking performance to come down the stairs and talk about everything she's been through in the last two days. And then you're like, you're like, you wouldn't be giving this speech if you supported him. But no, she fully just wanted to be dramatic as fuck to describe the shitty people she's had to deal with the last few days so that she can then say, I love you. You know, I'm so proud of you. And it's devastating and I'm weeping, but like, very clearly, Leto, the drama queen, was raised by an equally dramatic queen. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and like, and I also think that like they're they're the very cool and and interesting thing here is right like where I said that like the lo- the loved ones that these people the sensates choose to tell their stories to right like never really react badly that's not to say that they all ha- come from these like loving family backgrounds right like Wolfgang right. killed his own father because his own father mm-hmm. was so cruel and abusive to him right the the N- Nomi's family is awful and terrible right but mm-hmm. in all of these scenarios they have found people who they love and they trust even who are not within the cluster and they have Mm -hmm. like 
in Leto's case, right? Like it's like his openness and his final understanding. It almost feels like his mother breathes a sigh of relief because you know how she treats Danny. She says, Danny, you've been so nothing but kind and loving to my child. So of course you are like my child. Now you are welcome in my Mm -hmm. home. Anytime you don't have a welcoming home. I can be your welcoming home. And that's like, not a, it's not like a she's queer, she needs shelter kind of way. She is like extending that generosity and kindness. And like you can also see how those values were shared in Lido, right? And and right. like finding that 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 gentleness. I don't know. I think God, I, I this show is just like one where I think the 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 scenes that really made me boo-hoo sob were like the Amanita know me. Like any time that they get separated. Um, I think like I already said, especially the scenes where like Nomi is being held against her will and they're like trying to break her out of the hospital. Very, very like emotional for me. But again, later when Nomi almost gets killed and she is back in the apartment and what she says is she's like, I went back to the apartment because I don't know where Amanita is and like the relief and like that you see on like her face when Amanita like comes in and they finally find each other again is so powerful and like genuine and like raw, just really good acting. I don't know those moments where they have of, of connection and that theme of connection is just, I think my favorite part about this show. Mm -hmm. The thing that I always use to describe this show to people (laughs) is that in the first episode, (laughs) You uh, very, it's not the first scene, but you're uh, in the first episode. Uh, the way you're introduced to Nomi is that she and Amanita are having sex, they're banging, they're and, doing it, and there is a rainbow dildo. There is, yeah, in that scene that is like wet and used. Yep. <laughs> and the last scene of this show is the same wet rainbow dildo hitting the crowd. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is like the show. You you think the thing I'm saying there is probably like this show is like really horny and it is, but the thing that like it's the stuff I was talking about earlier. It's celebratory. It's joyous. It's horny, right? Yeah. It's queer as fuck. The most important part is that it's pure joy. Yeah, and I mean I think like it's not any more horny than True Blood, right? It's not yeah. any more horny than any other straight show. I think the right. thing that's like ultimately the most joyful and like what I'll eternally be grateful to the Wachowski sisters for in Sense8 is like, this is just a show that is like a good high value production story that includes sex that is about queer people in the same way that there exist a thousand versions of that for straight people. This Mm -hmm. is like the one that feels not like a straight person tried to write that version of a queer story, but this is a queer story, right? This is a queer story. It's a story of queer joy. It's a story of queer connection, of found family, of love. And like, you can you can see yourself in any of these characters, all of them, some of them, right? Like, and the story that it is trying to tell is one of expansion and like and joy and difference, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm get, I'm waxing I'm waxing philosophic. I've been talking for too long. Um, That's okay. I, so I, I want to say this because I, I think we need to say it. Um, and it's a really minute detail that I may just put somewhere else on the show. Mm. It's important to say that this show started out being made by both Lana and Lily. They both worked on the first season. Yeah. Um, and Lily had another project. Um, 
I forget what that show is called. It's a Showtime show. I could probably look it up. I'm not going to bother. But uh, Lily had another project she was working on. And so season two is purely done by Lana Machowski. Yeah. Um, that's probably why she has a more developed relationship with these people. Yeah. Right? And why they like went on to work on her next project. Um, this show was super expensive. It was in like that yeah. first batch of, of Netflix shows. And they shot like on location in like really expensive locations yeah. every episode. Um, and that's the primary reason it got canceled. Yeah. Um, is because it was too expensive and not enough people watched it. Um, and they basically gave them permission to make a cheaper finale movie. And so yeah. they mostly shot that in one place. All right. Well, I think that that is plenty of time talking about uh, the Matrix Resurrections yeah. and Sense8. I have so many other things I could have said, but you know what? We're done <sighs> two hours on this. Listen, I, I think I could talk for like another six about this show with you. I think as we're saying, like, we've also been talking about this show with each other for almost 10 years at this point. It, like yeah. the first season <laughs> came out in 2015 and like you and I have not shut up about it since. So yeah. um, I think like the things that always stick in my mind about this show are just like, it's just, it's just what a gift it is that this show exists in the world and that there are people out there who haven't watched it for the first time and get to experience watching this show for the first time. If that's you, if you made it to the end of this episode without watching a single episode of Sense8, I, I can't it's recommend time. it enough. It's time. You should go watch yeah. it. It's gay. It's hot. It's fun. It's interesting. It's compelling. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to tell you. And maybe um, it'll make the Matrix Resurrections hit for you a little harder yeah, next time you watch yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll at least get to uh, oogle at uh, Max Remelt the way that I do hey, every time I watch it. <laughs> hey, he is so sexy. All right. Well, AC, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at acfachi.com, a website I made specifically for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you find me at matthorton.live. What's the last thing I did? I put out a video on Marvel's Midnight Suns Ooh. Um, at the end of last month um, that I'm real proud of. It's very good. You should check it out. And I'm working on a shorter video about the video game Yakuza Like a Dragon. Okay. Um, which is a game I never thought I would play, but I'm having a great time. Hell yeah. I love that for you. I'm, <laughs> you can also find the show at can'tletitgo.gay and on Instagram, threads, and TikTok at can'tletitgo.gay. Thank you to the worst garbage. Um, I will just say we got the chance to have a conversation with everyone that makes some makes some things on the worst garbage recently, and it was a blast. It was so much fun. Had a great time. Love everyone on the network. You should come hang out with us on the TWD TWG Discord uh, and the Can't Let It Go channel, especially if you are as much of a fan of the Matrix Resurrections or Sensei as we are. Um, or come tell us the things that you're a fan of and that you think that maybe we should talk about it on the show or come to the discord so that there are more people to, there are more people for me to talk about traders too with, um, because I need more people to talk about the season, the <laughs> season of traders because Matt hasn't watched it yet. And it is actually killing me to keep all of my thoughts inside. Um, so if you want to talk to me about the week. traders, <laughs> don't worry. I've been taking notes the entire time <laughs> okay. because I'm normal and chill. And that's a, the, a normal and chill way to watch a TV show is to take notes. So, um, yeah, come hang out with us in the Discord. It's very fun. Yeah. I want to shout out also to the people that help us make the show. That would be Scout. Woo! Uh, for making our art, you can pay her to make some art for you at ko-fi.com slash humblegoat. 
um, when she has commissions open. And shout out to my friend Ethan at Pragmatism on Twitter for our music. Hey, AC, what are we talking about next time? Next time, we're talking about the elusive Garfield phone beach. You texted me these words when you said you wanted to do these episodes. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You told me this podcast was about anything that I can't stop thinking about. And I, since I have known about the existence of the Garfield phone beach, I've never known a moment of peace. Um, I can't wait to tell you about it. The idea that it's an actual beach because of the way you phrased that is news to me. And I'm excited to hear about it. Oh boy, Matt. Oh boy. Am I going to doozy for you? (laughs) All right. Well, we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Garbage. Not online.